You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. The first, very first morning, I walked out from, all of us did, walked out to see, wow, what an incredible place we're at. And it had snowed the night before. And the streets, the main streets in Peking then, <clears throat> covered with snow. And suddenly you see hundreds Maybe ten, more. Ten of people, thousand, ten thousand about, well, the whole street in front of us, hundreds were just makeshift brooms. That was a snowplow cleaning the streets. And that's where they started in 1972. Went to the window, and it was just before dawn, but just a play. Uh, thousands, many thousands of Chinese, men and women, with rudimentary rakes and brushes, they were cleaning the streets and sidewalks of the snow by hand. And I sat at the window in transfixed awe with all kinds of questions going through my head. Saying, look at this scene. Embed this scene, Dan. You've never seen anything like this before. What moves them to do this? What gets them to do this? How can this be happening? And I sat there literally transfixed for a very long time to watch that. Tonight's exhibition for President Nixon and his party was not restricted to the floor of this massive arena. The crowd was also on display, and it was orchestrated in a fashion that must have brought a lump to the throat of Richard Nixon, the political pro. The ceiling of the arena is equipped with separate light banks that can be switched on to illuminate certain sections of the crowd. As those lights would go on, that section of the crowd would applaud enthusiastically for the benefit of the cameras turned in that direction. Even with your eyes closed, you could tell where the lights were focused by the sound of the applause. About half of the evening was devoted to badminton and ping-pong exhibitions. In China, exhibition matches can be as exciting as regular competition because Chairman Mao teaches that in all sports, friendship is first, competition second. Or, as that well-known Maoist, Grantland Rice, put it, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Anyway, there we were at the end of the evening, being reminded of how this all began last spring with the ping heard round the world. This is Ted Koppel, ABC News, at the Capitol Indoor Sports Arena in Peking. Larry. Uh, this is the picture from the Great Wall, and remember... Uh, the American public got to take this trip with us, and it was quite an interesting trip. You, 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 if you think about it, uh, this is one of the symbols of China, old China and China today. And uh, to see an American president walking on that wall was really quite something. Also, probably for those of you who are really inside politicos, if you barely see this guy back here, you know, this is the great conservative Pat Buchanan walking on the wall and acting like a little kid. He was so excited to be there. Uh, you went so fast, I thought that was Deng Xiaoping next to him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Here's some picture of the president on the wall. And uh, uh, before that, you saw some of the houses we went by on the way out to the wall. Uh, a very, very special moment and a unique moment. And I think anybody who's ever had the privilege of going to China will be very impressed with uh, 
with what's there. Highlight of the historic journey, a visit to the Great Wall. Once designed to keep Mongolian warriors from overrunning the frontiers of ancient China, the wall snakes across the countryside for 1,684 miles. A people that can build a wall like this, the president says, certainly have a great past to be proud of. As we look on this wall, Mr. Nixon adds, we do not want walls of any kind between people. It's certainly one of the great sights of the world, the wall looping over the mountains to the north. This is where President Nixon came today. The Great Wall is not listed among the seven wonders of the ancient world, but that's because the people who made the list never saw it, even though it was there. It was built in 15 years by about 300,000 men before the birth of Christ to draw a 1,200-mile line across the top of China to keep out the barbarians, and several later dynasties rebuilt it. Now the government is again rebuilding it, this time to draw tourists, not to repel aggressors. Like the Maginot Line, it failed by omission. The invaders came in anyhow, through breaks in time of disrepair, around it, or by invitation through the gates. No one ever successfully stormed it. President and Mrs. Nixon drove up the 35 miles from Peking in early morning in bright sunshine after a light snow. They had only a light Chinese contingent with them, but quite a few of the people who supervised the restoration and the visitor facilities were there to show them the restored section. Mr. Nixon tested the gradient, steep in places if the wall heads from a pass to distant peaks, and he inspected the square stone blockhouses placed every few hundred yards. He was told about the difficulty of the building, of how the wall in its later years was used for communication of the enemies who came from the north. The president was the perfect tourist and campaigner, handshaking when appropriate, and looking out at the vista to the north from where the enemies used to come. After the tour, ABC's Tom Darrell asked him his impressions. Is that we have uh, uh, an, an open world. Uh, as we look at this wall, we do not want walls uh, of any kind between peoples. And uh, I think one of the results of our trip, we hope, may be that uh, the walls that are erected, uh, whether they are physical walls like this, or whether they are other walls of ideology or philosophy, uh, will not divide peoples in the world. Uh, that peoples, regardless of their differences in backgrounds and their philosophies, will have an opportunity to communicate with each, with each other, to know each other, uh, and to share with each other uh, those 
particular endeavors that will mean peaceful progress in the years ahead. So, all in all, I would say finally, uh, we've come a long way to be here today, 16,000 miles, and uh, many things that have occurred in this trip uh, have made me realize that uh, it was worth coming. But I would say, as I look at the wall, it's worth coming 16,000 miles just to stand here and see the wall. The Great Wall has been here in various states of repair and use for something like 2,200 years. And even as short a time as 100 years ago, it was more than a tourist attraction. It was North China's best military road. This reminds you of something about China that helps explain some of its paranoia and paradox. It is still awfully close to its own tangled and bloody imperial history. China, as a continuing and distinctive empire, is contemporary in history with Rome and with even earlier states. But when you think of the artifacts of Rome, the tourist attractions and the records, you think of something dead 1,700 years. Not so in China. China's current leaders were born under the empire. They remember the last empress, the panoply and corruption of the court, and the grinding and callous oppression of the people. Like the older Russian leaders, they remember why they had to have a revolution. But unlike the Russians, it took them 35 years after their first revolution to establish a firm government. With that in mind, and with the memory of how many Chinese dynasties flamed to power and died in weakened elegance, you can understand their determination to keep their own revolution alive. I said understand, not necessarily approve of their methods. The thing is, China's leaders still think of themselves as inside sort of a great wall. It's made of thought now, and it's more than the 35 feet high that those emperors 20 centuries ago thought was safe. That's what makes it especially interesting and significant. The Chairman Mao and Premier Zhou, whose wall is impenetrable, have sort of let Richard Nixon in the back way. This mountain and realizes that it runs for hundreds of miles, as a matter of fact, thousands of miles over the mountains and through the valleys of this country, uh, that it was built uh, over 2,000 years ago. Uh, I think that you would have to conclude that this is a great wall and that it had to be built by a great people. Uh, many lives, of course, were lost in building it because there was no machinery or equipment at the time. It had to all be done by hand. Uh, but under the circumstances, it uh, is a certainly symbol of what China in the past has been and what China in the future can become. A people that could build a wall like this uh, certainly uh, have a great past to be proud of and a people who have this kind of a past uh, must also have a great future. Uh, my hope is that in the future, perhaps as a result of uh, the beginning that we have made on this journey, that many, many Americans, particularly the young Americans who like to travel so much, will have an opportunity to come here as I have come here today with Mrs. Nixon and the others in our party. That they will be able to see this wall. Uh, that they will think back, as I think back, to the history of this great people. Uh, and that they will have an opportunity, as we have had an opportunity, to know the Chinese people and know them better. Uh, and uh, I think one of the results of our trip, we hope, 
may be that uh, the walls that are erected, uh, whether they are physical walls like this or whether they are other walls of ideology or philosophy, uh, will not divide peoples in the world. Uh, that peoples, regardless of their differences in backgrounds and their philosophies, will have an opportunity to communicate with each, with each other, to know each other, uh, and to share with each other uh, those particular endeavors that will mean peaceful progress in the years ahead. So, all in all, I would say finally, I, we've come a long way to be here today, 16,000 miles, and uh, many things that have occurred in this trip uh, have made me realize that uh, it was worth coming. But I would say, as I look at the wall, it's worth coming 16,000 miles just to stand here and see the wall. You agree, Mr. Secretary? I certainly do, Mr. President. It really is a tremendous privilege that we've all had to be here today. The Jongling Valley, north of Peking, nestled at the base of the Bada Mountains, lies the Ming Tombs, the imperial burial site of 13 emperors from the 15th century. As if to honor the ancient custom of dismounting along the sacred entryway, the presidential party stopped their motorcade. However, instead of a glum funeral procession, these callers were like gay tourists on a holiday, snapping pictures and posing alongside the mythical carved marble animals which line the route. According to legend, the statues of lions, elephants, and camels were placed here as substitutes for sacrifices offered at a lord's funeral. Today they serve well as photographic backdrops for a presidential holiday. Four miles further down the avenue of the animals, the Washington visitors reached the main tomb of the Emperor Young Lo. They toured the display cases, where among the artifacts they were surprised to discover the early Chinese used gold spoons besides chopsticks. They also went to the base of an 85-foot shaft to the actual small room where the Ming emperors were laid to rest. They viewed the caskets in a tiny cell appropriately called the coffin room. Before leaving the park-like site, the Nixons shook hands and exchanged small talk with some Chinese children who seemed to be there on an outing. The Chinese under Chairman Mao Zedong claim not to worship ancestors, but apparently if American tourists want to, that seems okay. Its history goes back thousands of years, uh, hundreds. It is again, of course, uh, a reminder of the, the very proud and uh, terms of cultural development, the rest of which history of the Chinese people. Uh, it's, uh, as I said earlier, at the wall, it's worth coming 16,000 miles to see the wall. It's worth coming that far to see this. Will you be recommending that Americans uh, apply for visas to have an opportunity to be tourists in China? Well, I won't comment on that question at this point. Uh, when we complete our meetings, we will uh, see what uh, kind of recommendations should be made in that respect. Certainly speaking, in a general sense, I think it would be uh, very valuable for and worthwhile for Americans, and for that matter, people in all countries, to be able to visit China. I know American officials with the president here in China feel this trip is going extremely well, both in terms of private talks and public appearances. The tone of both has been an extraordinary effort on the part of the Chinese to make this summit work. 
That's no small achievement considering the vast size, by Chinese standards, of a demanding American news corps. While reporters aren't getting much substance out of the Nixon Joe talks from either side, the Chinese are cooperating in communications and transportation on an unprecedented scale for them. Their manner may not be what Western newsmen have grown to expect, but the fact that they are being cooperative in relaying to the rest of the world the events here represents a significant Chinese policy change on the highest level. The president, of course, remains delighted at things having gone so well so far. Out today on a tourist holiday of the Great Walls and the main tombs, he was dropping those public hints which seem to have a way of rapidly evolving into policy, hints about opening China to more communications and tourism from the United States. Certainly, if the Chinese can withstand the onslaught of 200 American newsmen, accepting tourist, cultural exchanges, and a few journalists now should be for them a cup of tea. Tom Gerbil, ABC News, Peking. Again, this trip was meant to be shared with the American people, and to do that, President Nixon timed everything so that the American people could be a part of it. These are some examples of this. First of all, the trip to the Great Wall was in the morning in China, but it was in the evening in the United States and actually was broadcast live right from the Great Wall. So America got to experience exactly what was going on over there. The Shanghai communique was the same thing. We did it in the morning because we wanted it to be the evening news. We wanted to get the largest possible audience that we could for that event. We used Mrs. Nixon in another way. She'd go out often in the late afternoon because that would hit the morning shows in the United States and present a different image, often a much more image about what the Chinese people were like, what the customs was like, what the culture was like, what it was like to go to a school in China back then. So we were trying to make sure we presented the broadest possible picture of China that, that, and, and the American people got to come along and help, help and actually discover what we were discovering on a daily basis. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Put this in here because this this was the ever-present staged children. Wherever we went, there were these staged 
children dressed in colorful clothes doing all of these kinds of little games and so forth. Remember, everyone else is in a gray mouse suit. Yeah. And what makes this particularly <clears throat> significant is that uh, Ted Koppel on ABC, he was the ABC correspondent on the trip, did a piece uh, on the staging of these little kids at the Ming tombs, which Nixon left after he went to the Great Wall. And so that evening, uh, when the, or the next time that President Nixon met with Cho and Lai, Cho and Lai apologized to the president for the staging of the stuff. He was, they were horrified. So it, it, the other thing that it proves is they were really tracking what was going on with the U.S. media and how this was being covered because they knew immediately that this had happened. When Nixon went to a, uh, visit the Ming tombs, for instance, you know, the uh, Beijing Foreign Affairs Bureau at that time was uh, led by a military representative because that was not very far from the uh, uh, Cultural Revolution. He ordered some school children, all dressed in the best sweaters, colorful sweaters, uh, given uh, each person a uh, transistor radio. This was late February. Damn cold out there. And here were all these Chinese wearing their, you know, their, their warmest gear. But they were there taking photographs of one another, listening to the radio, having a picnic. And I thought to myself, I mean, this is really dumb. Nixon visited the Ming tombs today. He found an idyllic scene, people with the great masses sitting around in their Sunday finery. There were just a couple of things wrong with the picture, though. These people were especially brought here so that they could be seen by the Nixon party and photographed by the drove of newsmen traveling with the president. These pictures are, in short, a put-up job. So I told my crew, when the bus comes to pick us up, we're not getting on the bus. Just go hide behind that building over there and we'll come out. And I want to see what happens to the crowd. And sure enough, as soon as the reporters left, trucks came. Uh, cadre came by with baskets. They picked up all the tape recorders. They picked up all the cameras. They picked up all the portable radios, right? Put them in the baskets. They loaded the people on the trucks and off they went. You can tell uh, it's a uh, stage thing. I felt so embarrassed as well as a lot of my colleagues. And in fact, uh, Henry Kissinger told me later that after our piece aired and, and we showed that, uh, that he received an apology from Joe and Lai, who said that was really kind of ham-fisted of us, and I'm sorry that we did that. When President Nixon visited the Ming tombs today, he found an idyllic scene, people with the great masses sitting around in their Sunday finery. There were just a couple of things wrong with the picture, though. For one thing, it isn't Sunday. This is a normal working day, a very unlikely time for a Maoist family to be sitting around picnicking and listening to the radio. Beyond doubt, these people were especially brought here so that they could be seen by the Nixon party and photographed by the drove of newsmen traveling with the president. These pictures are, in short, a put-up job. Transistor radios in China cost anywhere from one to three months' salary. Every family here at the Ming Tombs today had either a radio or a camera, and sometimes both. One group of young girls spent the better part of an hour striking revolutionary poses, while President and Mrs. Nixon were shown around inside one of the tombs. 
These pictures of well-dressed, well-fed, almost bourgeois Chinese will undoubtedly reach many parts of the world without comment and will be accepted as representative of Chinese life today. The Chinese masses are much better dressed and fed than they've ever been before, but they simply don't sit around on work days scoffing candy and fruit and taking one another's pictures. Still, it was Richard Nixon's first opportunity to meet the people of China face to face, so I suppose it was only reasonable that the Chinese government would want him to meet a well-rehearsed and well-turned-out group. This is Ted Copper, ABC News, at the Ming Tombs outside Peking. Being that I'm from a tourist town, I kind of understand Chamber of Commerce uh, presentation, <laughs> but uh, it is you know something that you that that the Americans are learning as they go along is that the Chinese are really trying to put on a good face for the visiting Americans because this is as they say several times and throughout these uh, uh, presentations that I've got uh, that this is China's first. Uh, attempt to show themselves to the world, and they wanted to put a good face on it, and uh, and at times perhaps tried too hard. Also, uh, the Chinese were used to u- working with their journalist, and as Harry Reasoner is getting ready to explain, there is a world difference between what a Chinese journalist looks at, how they look at their job, and how uh, the American uh, media looks at at theirs. One of the main problems for journalists trying to explain to Chinese journalists the difference in our idea of what the profession is. I was talking to one Chinese journalist last night, and I asked him what he thought his main job was, and he said it was to help the government serve the people. I said, suppose the government does something bad. That stops him. The theory is this government cannot do anything bad. It might be a handy kind of government to have, if you were sure. I'm Harry Reasoner. The Forbidden City in Peking. The last time Americans got this close to members of the Chinese People Liberation Army was in Korea. It wasn't too comfortable. Now, with the president's visit here, American journalists are even being taken to see Chinese military units. These are some of the toughest soldiers in the Chinese Army. They belong to the 196th Infantry Division of the People's Liberation Army, the official name of the Chinese armor and infantry. There are more than 10,000 soldiers in this division. They are based on an agricultural plain at the village of Yangchun, about 50 miles from Peking. The main task of these resilient, resourceful troops is the defense of the capital, Peking. There are no USO shows for this man's army, no Bob Hopes. They entertain each other with propaganda skits. Chinese military men, because of U.S. weapons captured in Vietnam, know more about the American military than the Pentagon knows about the Chinese. All this is a demonstration for visiting American journalists, but we're told it's an everyday occurrence here, often with men having to go through these exploding minefields, something the Chinese obviously do not want to demonstrate before U.S. television cameras. Men can get blown to bits this way. But it prepares a soldier for the real thing and cuts down casualties in the long run. This dummy bayonet drill is a no-nonsense thing, but this, too, is slightly different when visitors are not present. In basic and advanced training, these troops have real bayonets in their weapons. 
Some men bleed in training with this kind of realistic approach, but because of it, they bleed less in combat. One of the criticisms of the American Army performance in Vietnam from U.S. military officers themselves is that the average U.S. soldier was not trained under realistic conditions for the Vietnam War, thus causing higher casualties. Chinese officials let us see all this for a reason, to show the world how tough this army is and what it could do if ordered into battle. Howard Tuckner, ABC News, Peking. American tourists like to buy things at least as well as they like to take pictures of things. And China is ready for them with special friendship stores designed shrewdly to suit every budget and taste. The stores in Peking are in a series front to back with less imaginative and more economical gifts like attractive scarves in the front building. These are ideal for cousins at around 250. The embroidered silk robe is something no self-respecting visitor to the Orient would come home without. I thought the ones here were good quality, heavy silk, well cut. The cost? Something in the neighborhood of $45. All travelers like something characteristic of the country they're visiting. In China, that's easy. Propaganda mini-tapestries of Chairman Mao and other heroes. Cheap at 25 cents or so. Or the traditional cloisonne. It has gotten expensive, but nice. A reasonably sized pair, 40 to $50. I fell for the goods in the shop at the rear, with jewelry and jade items from $5 to $6,000. Could I see that uh, big power arrangement? This one here. This one here. Well, these are uh, our stone. What are they? Yeah, jade. Only the constant. Our stone and jade. Which are the jade? The, uh, the green ones? The one is uh, new jade. That's new jade. New jade. This jade leaves. Jade leaves. Yeah. And turquoise coral. Yeah. And how much How much is it? 6,500. 6,500, yeah. For, uh, just, just for the two pair. For the two pair. For one pair. About... Three thousand dollars. I'll ask my wife. Please. This is Harry Reasoner in the Imperial City of Peking, the old forbidden city of the Chinese Empire. If an American president had come here a hundred years ago, he probably would not have been admitted. And if they did let him in, he would have had to bang his forehead on the floor three times. The old kowtow to the emperor. We get our English word kowtow from that Chinese word. But today he has no trouble, because President Nixon is the guest of a new kind of emperor who says that the forbidden city belongs to all the people. This is the president now, making his way into the great courtyard, being accompanied by the official Chinese party. There is Mrs. Nixon behind the president. Next to President Nixon is the vice premier of China, of the People's Republic, and now they're lost in the crowd again. It may be the source of some surprise to you that this Chinese government uh, would keep on, in fact, restore buildings like this one, which are so representative of uh, everything that the communists have opposed. But they take the attitude, at least publicly, that they restore buildings like this so that they can demonstrate to the people of China just how corrupt the uh, old emperors used to be and how much 
money they wasted, how extravagant those governments were in marked contrast to the government that now controls China. Still a light and dry snow coming down. And it is very dry here in Peking. Uh, the, the, the cold can be terribly deceiving here, and I'm surprised that the president has uh, neither a hat nor gloves on. Because if you're out for a few minutes, at first it seems, uh, because of the dryness, it seems quite pleasant. But that cold uh, gets to you. The president was impressed, but not overawed. He even introduced some American journalists to his Chinese host. <laughs> I've seen Gerald. I didn't see you. <laughs> without a hat. Gerald worked for you. You worked for him. <laughs> uh, we are all equal workers in America. Uh, ABC. Mr. Reisner. How are you, sir? Mr. Gerald. NBC. Mr. Kaplow. National Broadcaster. CBS. They only have a camera. After, I think... Why did you uh, welcome you all to China. Thank you. Okay. Mr. Nixon saw only three of the ceremonial halls, Supreme Harmony, Preserving Harmony, and Heavenly Purity. In the first hall, he looked at some of the ancient treasures and at the first of several ornate thrones. He had a question about the throne for the emperor's consort. The empress did not sit with him. <laughs> no equal rights for the guides told the president there used to be numbered pavements in front of the throne where cabinet officers kneeled during meetings. There's no word of adapting that practice to the White House. Not even American reporters pretend that they can learn a lot about China in one week, especially a ceremonial week. But we have noted some things. Nobody ever thought the Chinese were simple. But they're more mechanically sophisticated than I expected, at least. Their cars are good. Their factories seem modern. They seem to be trying to keep something of the old life, represented by places like the Forbidden City, and combine it with a technology and an international political flair that will make them once again the great power that they were several hundred years ago. One of the main problems journalists is trying to explain to Chinese journalists the difference in our idea of what the profession is. I was talking to one Chinese journalist last night, and I asked him what he thought his main job was, and he said it was to help the government serve the people. I said, suppose the government does something bad. That stops him. The theory is this government cannot do anything bad. It might be a handy kind of government to have, if you were sure. I'm Harry Reisner, the Forbidden City in Peking. Since we've been here in Peking, American journalists have seen mainly the modern parts of the city. We've been taken to those parts. It hasn't exactly been a spontaneous journey here. But then, on this day, we decided to take a walk by ourselves, just to stroll around the old city of Peking. And this is what we saw. There are seven million people in Peking, and many still live in areas like this one. Walled compounds, just a 10-minute walk from the modern showplace buildings in the center of the capital. What strikes you immediately about these areas is the drabness of life, the grayness. Almost everything is gray, except the official blue uniforms. But collective blue, so much standardized color, somehow becomes drab too. 
In sections like this, when they are not working at the factories, this is how life is lived by most of the millions of Chinese in Peking. In these sections, the medieval character and some of the majestic charm of old Peking, reminders of life here hundreds of years ago, are still clear. Although the walls may be gradually disappearing, Peking today is still best described as a walled town, enclaves of walls. The people we saw here, the typical Chinese living in Peking, were neither hostile nor friendly. When we asked permission to enter their courtyards to get an even closer look at the way Chinese live here, we were refused. And very few of the Chinese here thought it was a good idea to be photographed by our cameras. In the midst of this collective drabness, there was collective cleanliness. Their homes here are cold in the winter and hot in the summer, but the area is immaculate. The children living in this area are typical of the way children are being brought up all over China today. As they return home from a long day at elementary school, where they are constantly taught that they are the inheritors of the socialist cause, the discipline is evident. Most of these children have already started learning English. Among the first sentences they learn is, we have boundless love of Chairman Mao, and my brother is in the People's Liberation Army. A typical mathematics problem these children may have learned in class this day goes something like this. In a class of 500 students, 470 volunteered to go to the countryside and do productive labor. What percentage volunteered to do so? The stress is on volunteer. The little girls here, like most in China, will not marry and will have no deep romantic attachments before the officially approved age of 25. The boys here, the ones you see now, will not marry until the age of 28, the age approved by the state. Until then, there will be hard work and years of sexual privation. During their trip to Peking, the President and Mrs. Nixon have been shown some of the show places of the capital. But off the official path, this is how it is in much of China today. Howard Tuckner, ABC News, Peking. Nowhere is the people power of China more evident than when it snows here in downtown Peking. Today the snow came again and again, literally thousands turned out to sweep it and scrape it and push it by hand away from the streets. A chore which in America would be done, of course, primarily by trucks and mechanization, but which here in a country with some 800 million people, much of the work is done by hand. Almost as if on a magic signal, they file out of their homes, out of their apartments, filing out in squads very much like American troops might do in basic training, carrying over their shoulders the shovels, the brooms, the baskets, all of which will be used to clear away the snow from the downtown streets. 
Almost as soon as it starts, they turn out almost by magic signal. They file out here and do their clearing away of the streets. There are a few trucks which have brushes and push them aside. But primarily here in China, the work is done by hand. The people file out in the mornings early to do it, to clear it away and keep traffic moving. Tom Garwell, ABC News in downtown Peking. The thought of any operation is enough to unnerve most of us, but directly behind me is a 45-year-old woman who is about to undergo an operation while fully conscious and without the benefit of anesthesia. The woman is a schoolteacher. On her neck, as you can see, is an egg-sized thyroid growth. Inserted into either side of her neck, two small acupuncture needles. They will not deaden the feeling in her neck altogether, but they will deaden the pain. Most of the time, the needles are manipulated by hand, but they can also, as in this case, be vibrated by a small electronic device. After having the needles in her neck for 20 minutes, the patient is ready. From this point on, surgery proceeds as it might in an American operating theater, but throughout, the patient is wide awake, and nurses lean over and talk with her periodically to see if she's comfortable. A good selection of operations are in progress simultaneously. Next door, a young man lies munching on orange sections while surgeons remove part of one of his lungs. The only pain-killing device used in this lobectomy is one acupuncture needle in the patient's right forearm. The needle is manipulated by hand. American newsmen wander freely from one operating theater to the next. The removal of the thyroid growth takes about an hour. At the end of the operation, the woman sits up is helped into her robe and off the operating table. As she walks out of the operating theater and down the hall, a nurse whispers to her. She turns to the camera and waves. This is Ted Koppel, ABC News, at the number three hospital in Peking. The president's reciprocal banquet for Zhou Enlai was held at the same place as Zhou Enlai's Monday night banquet for the president, the Great Hall of the People. Prime Minister Zhou is seated to the right of the president, he seemed less enthusiastic tonight than he did at Monday night's banquet. Since then, the president and Zhou Enlai have had several more lengthy discussions, in all 20 hours of talks. Some observers noted that while the atmosphere was cordial, it seemed much more correct, stiffer, than it had been at Monday night's banquet. It seemed that the president and the Chinese prime minister were exchanging fewer words and smiles. Then the president gave his toast. We began our talks recognizing that we have great differences, but we are determined that those differences not prevent us from living together in peace. It is not our common beliefs that have brought us together here, but our common interests and our common hopes. The interest that each of us has to maintain our independence and the security of our peoples, and the hope that each of us has to build a new world order in which nations and peoples with different systems and different values can live together in peace, respecting one another while disagreeing with one another, letting history rather than the battlefield be the judge of their different ideas. That I ask you to rise and join me in a toast to Chairman Mao, to Premier Cho, to the people of our two countries, and to the hope of our children that peace and harmony can be the legacy of our generation to theirs. 
It was California champagne in those glasses, glasses bearing the presidential seal. They were gifts to all those attending the banquet. But there were fewer toasts now than at Monday night's banquet. And then it was Joe and Lai's turn. There exists great difference of principle between our two sides. Through earnest and frank discussions, a clearer knowledge of each other's positions and stand has been gained. This has been beneficial to both sides. It is the common desire of the Chinese and American peoples to enhance their mutual understanding and friendship and promote the normalization of relations between China and the United States. The Chinese government and people will work unswervingly towards this goal. Outward appearances Peking Airport was the same this morning as when President Nixon arrived on Monday. The same honor guard from the People's Liberation Army seemingly picked as much for uniformity of height as anything else, briskly marched and chanted their way onto the airport tarmac. The ceremonial departure was delayed somewhat because inside the terminal building in what amounted to a final plenary session for the Chinese and American negotiating teams, President Nixon and Premier Zhou Enlai sat side by side and presumably talked over the contents of their final communique. They had been working on the text of that communique until four o'clock this morning. These pictures, of course, were for pool photographers and any discussions would not have been taking place at this time. Henry Kissinger and China's foreign minister Xiao Kuanghua reportedly shuttled back and forth between the president and Premier Joe for much of the night, working on that communique. There's the president and Premier Joe walking up the steps, and it's a, a very low entrance now getting into that illusion. This is a Soviet-built airliner. President and Premier Joe waving. There's Mrs. Nixon just about to enter the plane. As we leave, President and Mrs. Nixon, as they're getting ready to go to Hang Chow, and we start to get into the Shanghai Communique, which is a major, the major uh, actual ne policy negotiated uh, thing that came out of this trip to China. Uh, some experts on the trip, um, Nicholas Platt being chiefly one of them, he was an assistant to uh, Secretary of State Rogers, uh, got together and talked about the things that they learned in this trip. Um, and, and that they, they took away. And I thought that would be an interesting way to end this episode, looking at what these experts thought about this stunning diplomatic move by President Nixon that really did change the world. So, Nick, you at this point were a young Foreign Service officer and, and I assume steeped in the ideology of the Cold War and presumably not particularly pro-communist. What was in your head when you were on this plane about to go to the land of the Antichrist to bury the hatchet and to uh, have your leader, President Nixon, embrace these people who we'd spent decades in opposition to? I was just pinching myself. <laughs> I, I, this was a dream, you know. I, I had studied Chinese in, in, in the early 60s, 
I'd spent years as a China analyst in Hong Kong, working with people like Stan Carno and, and the Calbs and so on and so forth. Um, and the idea that uh, we were actually going to go to China and that Nixon and Mao, by the way, this took a lot of political will on, in both governments, and only people as powerful as Mao and and Nixon were a, were able to, to to pull this off. But tell us about how how did you all sort of repurpose your brains from this sort of Cold War perspective to suddenly this is okay? My brain was already prepurposed. I mean, I I wanted a relationship with China. I thought it was long overdue. Uh, we had operated under the analytical assumption that China and, and the Soviet Union were a united bloc, which was crazy. It was wrong. I mean, there's so much evidence that that was not so. And what Nixon was doing was taking advantage of, for the first time in policy terms, uh, of, of the Sino-Soviet difficulties, Sino-Soviet split. And it completely changed the um, the way the dynamics of international politics went. And how did the trip itself, uh, Max and Nick, change your minds? I mean, when you landed there, you were of one frame of mind. What frame of mind were you in when you left? Well, um, when I left, uh, I was still pinching myself. Uh, but uh, I, I had come, even in this strange bubble that we were in, you know, no contact with the Chinese other than our own particular minders. Um, we had spent our time talking about sort of the nuts and bolts of the relationship to come. Uh, trade, travel, investment, legal issues, uh, sports, culture, etc., etc., all of which ultimately became the relationship after the triangular uh, diplomacy came to an end. But my, my distinct memory, people ask me when I came back, well, what did you learn that you didn't know before? And I said, well, it's really silly, silly for me to say this. Uh, but I came away with the impression, strong impression, uh, that communism is a very thin veneer and that this, we were dealing with Chinese. I'd been dealing with Chinese from Hong Kong, from, from Taiwan, so on and so forth. But that these people that we were dealing with were Chinese. And they said, wow, is that what you learned? I think, I think there's truth in both of those things. I mean, I think Max is right. Eventually, sooner or later, the logic of having a relationship with China and the lunacy of not having a relationship with China would have sort of hit critical mass anyway. But... You know, I've kind of been living and breathing this stuff for for a long time. And I think, you know, Nixon and Kissinger do deserve credit for sort of sussing out that there was a moment and then actually acting on it. And and, and Nixon's calculation uh, was that only a guy like Nixon could do this. And interestingly, I interviewed Morley Safer, 60 Minutes, for another episode, which actually will precede this one. And he talks about having lunch with Nixon in Hong Kong in 1967 and asking Nixon, wanting to ask Nixon about Vietnam, and Nixon saying, Vietnam's not important, it's a sideshow. China's what's really important. And he wrote an article. And he wrote an article in Foreign Affairs about it. So so he had been thinking this for a long time, but what Nixon said to Safer was, the only person who can do an opening to China 
politically in the States would be a Republican president because he was the one who could, had credibility with the people who were against it. If a Democrat had been doing it, Nixon would have been the first one to sort of get on the bandwagon and bait them for betraying Taiwan and so on. So he, he you know, he was able politically to do it and to sell it to uh, a lot, not all, but a lot of the skeptics on the right by saying, well, this is our great step to uh, counter the Soviet Union and bring the Chinese in on our side, and therefore if we have to do certain things. So you have to give them credit. You say Nixon comes, I mean, I'm a product of the 1960s, the anti-war movement, and I was not exactly a fan of Nixon growing up. And I, but he's an extremely complicated figure who had great insights and pulled this off and was simultaneously, you know, the most petty, vindictive, conspiratorial, all these things, and Kissinger the same way. Um, and, 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 you know, when you look at the transcripts and the, and the, the fear they had of losing control and so on, um, it's really, it's a, it's a complete split personality of these guys did this amazing thing with this other side of it that was not nearly so attractive. I had two dominant impressions. One was, especially driving through the countryside, what a poor country this was. Um, we... We knew that it was, you know, massively populated, um, but we had, I, I had no, no idea of, of, of the primitive nature of the agriculture that, that we witnessed as a bus was speeding through the country. You were seeing the best of it. And, and, and that's right. Um, and, um, but even more vivid in my mind because of the poverty was going through, um, uh, Beijing, uh, on my own, where possible. And mind you, I had spent three years in the Soviet Union, and I'd seen a great communist country and how it functioned and the, the terrible shortages and the sloppiness of, of life uh, in Moscow as I had experienced it. And here, going around uh, Beijing, uh, the store that was selling multicolored ping-pong balls, magnificently arranged, in a retail fashion that you could never have seen in Moscow. Uh, somebody else, uh, another store, had crayons and drawing paper and a few primitive uh, art art supplies. But the, the pride of display, uh, not done for us, uh, but this was in the normal run of things. In the department store, the efficiency with which the sales slips were with a, with a clothespin were passed on a, on a string down to the cashier and they would come back promptly and, the, and everything worked functionally. And I knew, of course, that Chinese people elsewhere, especially in, in, in the United States, but also in Indonesia and, and throughout Asia, uh, when turned loose in an entrepreneurial fashion, uh, had enormous creativity and, 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 and work ethic. Uh, which I never saw in the Soviet Union. Uh, and I remember saying to somebody, if these people are ever turned loose, um, watch out. You and Napoleon. <laughs> I and Napoleon, right. China has come a long way since 1972. And this is a very interesting final statement from uh, Nicholas Platt about how Richard Nixon would feel about that and his place in beginning and opening the door to China. I think, I think Nixon would have been astonished. Um, none of us had a clue 
that China was going to develop economically so rapidly, or that economic and people-to-people relationships between the U.S. and China were going to um, uh, play such an important role uh, in, in, our, in our overall relationship now or grow to such a gigantic size. He was interested in, in the, the tri, trilateral mm. diplomacy and in trying to put the Soviets off balance, get them to be more responsive to um, his policies, his desire to get out of Vietnam, his uh, arms control arrangements and so forth. Uh, but after the Soviet Union collapsed and so forth, and Tiananmen occurred, the relationship um, had to survive these great blows to, 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 to uh, the, the relationship, and, and did so on the basis of the people-to-people uh, contacts to which he and Nixon relegated to the State Department. Anyway, I think, I think he would have been astonished at the size of the relationship and quite delighted with the, the, the role that he played in starting it all. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.